Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Plus EV Better George. George, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Plus EV Better George. George, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, how's it going, Jake? Good to be on. Thanks for coming on. So, George, set the stage for us. What what led you into sports betting? Yeah, so I started my career in down a traditional Wall Street path, sort of uh, at a tip standard investment bank in New York, um, and then went into private and public market investments at different uh, funds. Um, private equity hedge funds doing uh, public market investments uh, on uh, stocks. And over time, you know, something that I always did in my spare time was uh, bet sports and try to gain an edge in that. I've always done things like uh, count cards and play poker and do things, play games that I think are uh, inherently fun against other people that, um, just spoke to me and so took a took a career path that led me to sports betting from there applying a lot of the finance skills that I had developed early in my career so um, that's sort of where I landed the past few years was uh, building quantitative sports models um, and uh, betting and uh, working with some other guys uh, in the sports betting arena. Did you have any mentors or people that you looked up to throughout that time, especially sort of transitioning from, you know, Wall Street, you know, private equity hedge funds, that type of thing, and over to sports betting? Or was it pretty pretty vacant and empty in that sort of arena? I would say the, the biggest thing is through reading. I mean, there have been, uh, you know, from Bill James, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, uh, who listens to this podcast, and Sabermetrics, uh, to... You know, especially around football, there um, is a book by Chris Brown that talks about, um, you know, sort of the analytics of football to Dean Oliver. You know, so so just getting sort of the insight into the thought leaders in the sports analytics space helped me get uh, insight into um, how I could apply uh, financial techniques into into the more domain expertise of sports analysis. Were there lots and lots that you found, or was it you know Bill James, Joe Peter, Ed Thorpe, these types of people that existed, or was there sort of a plethora of options and you had to sort of dig through? And there might have been varying approaches to football, for example. I know uh, you know some of the books talk about um, you know when to go for it on on fourth down, the difference between you know taking a knee in the end zone and starting at the twenty or twenty five yard line versus you know taking the ball out, all that type of stuff. Was there a not necessarily peer-reviewed, but a, a varying approach to those things, or was it pretty much there was a handful of people that stood out? The biggest thing is the thought leaders in the sports. I wouldn't say that there are, and it's continually evolving. I mean, I think there's a lot of guys out there who do great work um, in terms of sports uh, analytics as it relates to certain sports, especially um, with football. I think they're... Uh, especially now with play-by-play data being so prevalent, it's, it's changed from what uh, football analysis used to be. Um, so the seminal book on football analytics was a book by uh, a man named Chris Brown. Um, and, you know, that was written in, I think, 1989. And as data has gotten more and more granular, 
the techniques, just like in any industry, have changed. So uh, you continually have to find uh, either develop techniques yourself or find people who are doing the same sort of things and learn from them about what you know what's cutting edge and what can give you an edge in any sort of market that you're trying to participate in. So I would say that the the type of people that you're trying to learn from is continually evolving, but sticking with the classics of you know the Dean Oliver, Bill James, uh, Chris Browns, you can then build off of that and uh, with any new techniques that you have with you yourself have in terms of you know uh, data science or you know, financial analysis techniques that you can then apply that domain expertise uh, to those fields. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, certainly a great foundation. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, the different techniques. Was there a large knowledge transfer from finance to sports betting initially, or did it take some time? I think anytime you are talking about trying to find expected value, you're going to have the same uh, general mindset of I'm trying to buy a dollar for 90 cents, right? So I'm trying to bet on uh, the Patriots are at minus seven. I think that the line should be minus 10. So there is value in betting on the Patriots. Or uh, when you're investing in a stock, it's figuring out, hey, um, you know, Apple is trading at $100, I think it's worth 150 uh, So it's that same mindset of figuring out, um, you know, hey, I want to buy a dollar, I want to buy a dollar, and but I only want to pay 90 cents. So it's, you know, figuring out where there is market mispricing, basically. That is the main core tenant of sports betting, investing um, in general, just finding those um, positive expected value situations. When you start out with a sport, take us back to the very beginning when you're sort of building out a process. Uh, let's take NFL, for example. Where do you start? If you've read a book or two, you might have been a fan, you understand the game, and then you get into sports betting, and you, for whatever reason, let's say you have to bet sports betting um, as your full-time job now. What do you, where do you start? What, do you, what are some of the things you're looking at in the very beginning to build a framework to be able to find those plus EV bets? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I think the main thing that you want to do when you look at a sport is finding those leverage points, um, those leverage points of variance. And uh, if you can find those and strip those out, I think you're going to be ahead of the game. And, and but what I mean by leverage points of variance for something like football, it's figuring out that, hey, what's predictive versus descriptive, right? So um, something that is descriptive of what happened is maybe a team fumbled the ball three times in a game and lost by 21 points. That, while that's descriptive and accurate of what happened during the game, that's not going to be predictive going forward, uh, right? Because uh, negative turnover differential has shown to regress um, towards basically zero. There's no predictive value in something like turnover differential. So being able to strip out things like that, like turnover uh, fumbles, interceptions in football or three-point shooting in basketball or, um, you know, uh, finding these leverage points in different sports and basically distilling, hey, what is the actual skill that can predict uh, this sport going forward is um, the first thing that you want to do when you're trying to break down and say, hey, I want to uh, properly analyze this match um, and determine how good is this, how good is this team really is taking out that um, those high variance leverage points um, that you know may tell you that a team is uh, lost, won or, won or lost a game, but is not going to tell you if they're going to win or lose in the future. How often do those leverage points of variance you talk about change or develop, and are they literally the same? But as the market catches up to them, the edge in them disappears, and you have to find the next iteration and the next iteration. Yes, yeah, so that's. I mean, that's exactly correct. The a lot of these things will get priced into the market. Uh, a lot of these things that are talked about, like turnover differential, um, another one that may be less well known is uh, something like explosive plays, which um, you know determines you know if, for example, an eighty-yard touchdown run um, is. That probably would have happened from 50 yards out, but they get credit for the 80 yards. So that's going to increase a lot of the statistics uh, for that football team. So 
continually finding these sort of high high variance or alpha generating edges is what investing or sports betting is all about um is you know finding finding them and then figuring out if they're priced into the market and then continuing to find more because uh, as data gets more and more granular and people are able to get you know play by play data they're able to get uh you know spatial you know i uh work with an nfl on a project and we got you know, spatial coordinates of players, X, Y coordinates. Um, so as the data gets more and more granular in terms of uh, what you're able to analyze, you're then going to see um, more and more of these edges be exposed um, in terms of figuring out how to distill that data. Does that ever end? Is that just a continuum that just continues on? And, you know, there's new edges to be found, although the markets will be efficient and get more efficient, but there'll still be new edges to be found. And as certain things get priced in, they sway along the line, but ultimately it's a continuous process. Yeah. So the, the thing you have to realize is, is yes, it is sort of, uh, you know, there is an asymptote to which, you know, you can, you can accurately predict games, right? Uh, there is a randomness component to sports, uh, which you know makes them inherently fun, which you don't know which team is actually going to win, um, that just will never be able to pr- be predicted. And then there is that skill portion of the game that you know everybody is trying to determine accurately. And that is going faster and faster, but there is a limit to which ra- there is, you know, say that you know in football, uh, we've determined that there's something like 25 to 35% of the game is based on luck, right? So if you can determine, uh, so 25 to 35% of the time um, within a game, this has a lot to do with how long a game is played, number of possessions, things like that. If you can determine um, how much of that luck comes into play, you can accurately determine, hey, what is the maximum likelihood what is the maximum probability that I can accurately predict this sport, right? Um, and it's different for basketball versus football versus soccer versus uh, any of these sports. Um, there's a different variance component that these sports have that, you know, as someone who is trying to pre- uh, predict outcomes of matches has to take into account that, hey, there is a limit. I'm, you'll never be able to be 100% um, against the spread in any sport because of that randomness factor. And is that a multitude of factors or is that, you know, total posi- like NBA, for example, there's a lot of possessions versus NFL where there might not be more than 30, for example. And in soccer, there's very low scoring. So how many factors go into finding out what that randomness component might be? So there are a lot of factors that go, I mean, and it varies from sport to sport. Uh, you wouldn't be able to just pinpoint it for one sport. So for instance, in football, um, a lot, a lot of breaking down the game of football is figuring out how good a quarterback is, um, and because he is going to uh, quarterback that offense, he's going to literally touch the ball every time um, the offense touches it. Now, whether he hands it off the running back or throws it down the field, um, calls an audible at the line, that sort of dynamic that that uh, quarterback has is going to influence. Uh, the skill of that team. Whereas in basketball, there are five players on the court who can equally contribute in certain, in a certain way on a football pitch. There are, um, you know, uh, a certain number of players that, you know, like you said, there's low scoring and then, um, a certain number of times that a team touches the ball, like you alluded to is going, you know, the, the, the time, the number of team times a team touches the ball, um, just hones in, just hones in on, the actual skill of the event, right? It's like if you flipped a coin five times, you could easily get five heads versus uh, no tails. But if you flipped it a hundred times, it's very unlikely that you're going to get a hundred heads versus uh, zero tails, right? So um, the more possessions you play in certain sports, just sort of um, crystallizes the actual skill level of that team. You know, which is why the Golden State Warriors are very unlikely to to lose to like the Sacramento Kings, whereas um, the New England Patriots could very well lose to uh, 
any team on any given Sunday. Do you have a preference in terms of, uh, I guess, the skill and the luck components and, and being able to crystallize it down like you mentioned? Do you prefer to bet on events that have you know, more randomness, let's call it, versus less? Or is it just about picking the sport that works best for you? It's it's not it's not about for me it's not about oh i it's exciting in a method of oh this has more of a luck component it's more fun to watch or this um it's more of a function of uh if i'm doing this as my job and i want to make money then well where i have the most edge right so if um you know football's a, a great example of a sport that you know while it's uh, well-known and well-followed because it's a unique sport and that it's so publicly bet in the U.S., um, you will get you will be able to find a lot of value throughout the season or small market college football teams. Um, you know, lines just won't be as sharp on these teams. So, you know, if you're going to ask me what I enjoy betting most, it's uh, where I can find the most value is what I would enjoy betting uh, most. Got it. Tell me about context. A lot of people I talk to mention it. What are your thoughts on when putting together your models and analysis, the idea of context around plays or possessions or whatever it might be? Context. So, yeah, I mean, it's hugely important to, uh, I guess, in terms of the process of building a betting model. And, uh, again, this is this is just pruning your data set so that it's a quality data set, right? Um, if a team is up, 35-0 in the fourth quarter, um, and they have their second-string quarterback in, are you going to count the 80-yard touchdown pass that the second-string quarterback threw for? Um, is that predicted going forward, right? Probably not, so you want some mechanism to throw that out. So an easy way to do that would be, uh, like you said, the context of the game. Say, hey, um, I'm only going to look at plays within where a team is within 21 points before – the third quarter or something like that as my predictive data set going forward. So that's just, um, so there's that portion of using uh, quality data going forward. And another, I guess, maybe what you're referencing is sort of, um, you know, something that's well known in the football analytics community, which is success rate, right? Um, a successful play on first down, five yards is a successful play on, on first down, um, or one yard isn't a successful play on first down. But if it's third and inches and you get one yard, that's a successful play, right? So context in that down and distance scenario definitely has a huge impact on um, uh, whether a team was efficient or not. Okay, that's interesting. Can you... Dig in a little deeper on that. Obviously, it's very intuitive. If you're following your team and it's third and three and there's a four-yard run, you like feel good in your bones because you know you got another set of downs. So intuitively, it makes sense. You know, the context of the game is obviously relevant, and important. But why? Just take us through why that might be predictive or why efficiency is so important from a broader aspect as well, not just that individual play. And and is it just that that's high leverage or it's a high importance? play and therefore it's more relevant versus the you know nine yard touchdown run you know down 21 right so it it goes back to figuring out the skill of a team um and you want to figure out what a goal the goal of this team is right and the goal of the team um is to get isn't to just turn yardage out the goal of the team is to score points keep the drive going um in this case right and so um, the, it's just using the right metric to measure this team. And so instead of saying, I want to use yards per carry to measure a team, you want to say, I want to use success rate to determine the efficiency of the team. Um, right. And it's saying, uh, using things like success rate, using things like, um, win probability added, expected points added, um, these, these statistics that more accurately reflect what a team is really trying to do versus just gain yardage, right? Because uh, I think as fans, we're conditioned by what we see on TV uh, where they show, oh, this running back averages you know, 4.3 yards per carry to say, okay, whether that's a good running back or not. But 
you know, a better, a much better way to measure the context of a running back would be to say, hey, this running back is successful on 60% of his runs. That, to me, is the way to measure um, the quality of a player or team. So it's so when 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 we talk about context, it's just using the right metrics to measure um, is how I would think about it. Yeah. So you're essentially creating or recreating your own preferred metric, which would be you know based upon things you value. Exactly. Exactly. And th- this goes into sort of domain expertise on knowing what's important in that sport, right? Um, when you know that uh, getting a first down is more important than uh, uh, getting a lot of yardage. And, you know, a third and eight, 18, if you only gain 10 yards, the defense was probably giving you that 10 yards. Um, but on a third and one, it's going to be a lot harder to get that one yard because the defense knows that you're going to try a uh, – are more likely to try a run. So, yeah, it's determining what is actually uh, being – uh, what is the actual goal of these teams is and, and measuring that is 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 going to help you a lot in term in building out models and measuring uh, the success of teams. So in terms of finding what's predictive, do you have a a specific process to validate? You might have picked a stat you mentioned before. I think explosiveness um, and and certain statistics might you know generally regress back to the mean and you know whether it's turnovers or fumbles and things like that. Fumbles recovered. Do you have a process you go through when you're, whether it's you found a new statistic or you're going through something in the off season that you can share with us in terms of trying to determine if it's predictive or just descriptive? Yeah. So, I mean, this is just pure statistics and finding things that have statistical significance in a T plus one scenario, right? And if, if I take the, the previous data is going forward is what this variable or factor that I've pruned out, is this going to help me in the future uh, determine uh, determine whether, is this repeatable in the future for this team, basically? And even if it's not repeatable in the sense, then that's still instructive because for a thing like turnovers where it's not repeatable, um, you can at least say, hey, well, then there's a high regression component that can then be factored into this um, variable. So, um, just it's it's basic sort of I think statistics um, that any person would look at. You know, there's you know p value t- test testing. There's a, a lot of different uh, statistical significance tests that you would do to to figure out. Hey, should I use the cross validation? Should I use this factor into my model or should I prune it out? Should I reduce the number of factors? Um, so it's it's a whole process uh, that any analyst would use in any field to say, hey, is this going to help me going forward? Or is this just an interesting stat to look at? It's a bit of a random question. Momentum in an NFL game, let's say. Do you believe in that idea of momentum or do you think it's just whatever happened was, you know, within a couple of standard deviations of happening anyway. So it's not momentum. It's just what could have happened. So whether it's, you know, the Patriots Falcons Super Bowl where, you know, if you're at the stadium, it felt like they were going to win. And if people that believe in momentum would say, yeah, it was just all momentum. They kept scoring two point play. They won the toss for overtime. They took the ball. They didn't do any crazy Belichick thing and they won the game. And there was a lot of momentum involved how do you how do you think about the idea of momentum? Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a question that's been explored a lot, and I think that it's a, it's another way to sort of phrase the hot hand theory, right? Um, you know, it does does that actually exist? And you know, there's literature and there's you know studies going both ways. I fall into the camp that um, you know you're going to. Uh, I, it, I fall into the camp of you have a prior that uh, is going to be constantly updated in, in, a, in a Bayesian approach, but that prior still still holds the majority of the weighting in terms of what a team or a player is going to do in the future. So um, there will likely be some regression um, 
anytime you see, you know, one of these small sample size streaks in terms of uh, a team doing really well, whether that's making a lot of three-point shots or um, completing a really high percentage of passes, I think that you have to take into account that, you know, at some point uh, the uh, re- regression towards the prior is is going to come into effect. So. Yeah, it's an interesting one. There's many different takes on it. Uh, question on how often you update your model and modify and tinker. Would your NFL model from, let's say, five seasons ago, untouched from back then, work today, or is that a long way off? There is... So that that touches on the point that we talked about earlier, Jake, in terms of just uh, what you call in the finance world alpha decay, right? Anytime you have a strategy that works, people are going to exploit it until it doesn't work, until it gets priced into the market. So if you had, it, it depends on the model that you had and what the factors were in that model. Um, because a lot of times when something works, uh, it, it's only going to work for, you know, a certain period of time before uh, everybody knows about it and everybody starts betting it in. Then the lines start adjusting or the prices start adjusting and there's no longer any value in betting that certain way. So um, a lot of a lot of it comes down to uh, how you built your model. Was it sort of a fundamental model that is trying to measure team strength, or was it a more technical model trying to measure, uh, trying to take advantage of you know some factors that um, you thought um, that were significant back then, like in the you know early '90s. Uh, Betting home dogs was very uh, was would have been a model that would have been very profitable. Betting home dogs now is not going to be a profitable model, um, right? But if you had a model that was looking at uh, evaluating team performance in the '90s and could accurately measure that um, with certain metrics, um, that's always going to have value going forward because uh, you're always going to want to be able to accurately measure skill for the reasons we touched on earlier to determine the uh, to determine an accurate price for the game that's being set. So do you think you need to do something unique in order to win and especially long term or do you think being, you know, disciplined, smart, um, calculated in how you put your model together and obviously bankroll management needs to be sound? In terms of something special or unique, do you need that to win, or do you think it's something that's obviously great to have and it might push you from, you know, fifty-four and a half percent to fifty-six percent? But ultimately, there's a there's a path to win without being, uh, you know, a genius. I think if you can't, I would say this. Um, <laughs> you know, talking to sports books directors and uh, being in the sports betting industry for a while probably around 98% of sports bettors lose. Um, And I think what you mentioned first in terms of bankroll management, that's the first thing um, why people people lose. Um, uh, Another reason is, you know, they can't, they have to find an edge and they, some people are, you know, just going to be coin flippers. It's going to be a random coin flip and the book's going to charge you 110 to win 100. Anytime you are laying 110 to win 100 and you're flipping a coin, um, you know, 70% of the time, if you if you flipped a coin 100 times um, and you laid 110 to win 100, 70% of the time you would be a loser in that situation. Um, so uh, that right there is sort of table stakes is finding an edge. Um, if you can't find an edge, you uh, will likely be a loser. If you can't quantify that edge, then you won't be able to have proper bankroll management. And it's especially hard in sports betting versus, say, um, uh, uh, stock investing or financial management because these are binary outcome events, right? Um, The Patriots are either going to win or lose. You're either going to win $100 or lose $110 um, on Sunday. And um, this is a very hard concept for most people to grasp, even professional uh, money managers to grasp. Um, there was there was a paper written by a man named Victor Hagani who was um, 
uh, a partner at Long-Term Capital Management, which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, we did, an ep- we did an episode with Victor, actually, I think around this study. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so exactly exactly that, where, um, you know, then you'd probably be able to, to say it just as well as I would, but you could give people the day's news, and because they couldn't properly manage their bankroll, um, they are going to... Uh, they are going to end up losers, right? I think it was something like 30% of the people who, one-third of the people who were flipping a weighted coin, uh, 60%, 40%. So I'm telling you, telling you you're going to have 60% winners. Um, one-third of the people are going to go bust. I mean, that's just how important money management is in terms of um, A, staying in the game, and B, uh, minimizing drawdowns and maximizing profits. Yeah, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing to read when you when you haven't thought about it, I suppose, even though, you know, a lot of people who are listening are probably very well equipped to talk about Kelly criterion and talk about overbetting and talk about these things. And then you read this paper and you think, "Wow, I didn't know that or that seems wild or there's no way that would have happened." But um yeah, I think it was episode 21 we did with Victor where we talked about the paper and um, talked about even in many situations where you overbet, it doesn't matter. You're just going to lose and you're going to go bankrupt. It's um, There's actually, you know, this is a concept in quantitative investing that we talk about a lot. It's, it's, it's a term, you know, Victor eloquently put it in that paper by doing that study showing that people don't know how to properly size their positions. But it's a term called vol drag where, you know, if I gave you a game where you would, you're up, uh, if, if you win, if we flip a coin, you win, you, you make 10%. If you lose, um, you lose 10% of your portfolio. Um, and But 51% of the time you're going to win and 49% of the time you're going to lose. Uh, base, 99% of the time, uh, even though it's 51-49 in terms of uh, uh, winning, 98% of the time or 99% of the time, you will end up a loser because, you know, that – distribution of the winners is they're they're skewing that positive expectation so much uh so much that uh everybody else is a loser um because there's too much volatility in your bankroll basically the drawdowns are much too high for um uh the the amount of capital that a person has so being able to properly manage your capital is uh imperative if and necessary to even be to even be prop to even before you talk about finding these edges in the sports betting market. Yeah, it's and it's really hard, especially when you look into some of the even when you read all the literature. If you've you know you've probably read uh, Poundstone's book Fortune's Formula, and you hear from the Ed Thorpes of the world who have done it for a long time and been very successful, and and you read Victor's paper and a few other things, and you're talking about Voldrag, I haven't heard of, but. There's a lot of different things out there that when you try and put it all together and how do you manage your bank, I ask people whether they have a bank for every sport they do, how often they you know, recalculate the bank to find their unit sizes, do they do it every day, every month, every season, every year, and there's a lot of different components that go into it. Um, and one of them is if you have large drawdowns, you still got to work your way back up to get back to square oftentimes, and there's a lot of problems within that in terms of understanding what your capital is, what it might be, the chances of it going one way versus the other and so on. And a lot of the outcomes are very bad and end up in being bankrupt. Most, most of them do end up, end up being bankrupt, even if you have an edge. And that's, uh, that especially is true in these coin flip or binary outcome situations. Um, you know, in, and even the best, uh, sports modeler, um, even the best, you know, uh, is, is, is going to be very hard-pressed to accurately tell you their edge on any given outcome. They may have a range of edges that they could tell you, oh, I think I'm, you know, uh, this game has a 3 to 5% edge for me. Um, but, you know, the the reality of, is it, of it is that it's very tough to predict that, and they're probably being, being over-aggressive in what they think their edge actually is, and that many times, even for the smartest people, um, the best well-informed, the people with the most information, they could still lose because it's going to kill them in bankroll management. So one more question around the betting process. 
analytical approaches and, and situational approaches, do both of them work in your mind or can you use one or the other or both combined to win long term? So can you explain to me the difference between analytical and situational approaches? Yeah, so analytical is I create a model. It spits out my you know Patriots minus seven and the markets minus 10. I'm, I'm going to bet on that and then bankroll management is, is separate. Situational might be, you know, in the past people talked about West Coast teams going to the East Coast, uh, playing, you know, in different time zones, things like that, or having a week's rest or playing Thursday night and then the following Sunday or going to London and coming back, all those types of things that are difficult to quantify seemingly right. or have a attach a value to like things like a rest and things like, you know, Andy Reid off a bye and all that sort of stuff. Some yeah. of it's easier than others, but... A lot of people, certainly in the U.S. and certainly in NFL, there's a large contingent that seem to focus on a lot of the situational stuff. Right. Others, a lot of people do both, and they have a strong analytical model, and then if they factor in, well, my model says minus 7, the market's minus 10, and this team played on a Thursday night, so that is an additional half point or whatever they come up with. How do you think about the analytical and the situational? Yeah, I think it's a... I think it, there's a great corollary in the world of finance. Um, you know, we call in finance, you call it fundamental versus technical investing, right? Where fundamental investing is looking at the intrinsic value of a company. Um, how much cash flow will it earn? Um, what, you know, what are uh, its future revenue projections, et cetera? And that would, what I would equate to your, uh, anal- would be what I equate to what you call analytical uh, sports betting, where it's a, it's a bottoms-up approach where I'm trying to determine the intrinsic value of this team or stock, um, whereas technical investing doesn't look, doesn't care about the um, intrinsic value of the stock. It's looking at things like momentum, right? It's it's looking at technical indicators that have nothing to do with um, the stock itself, um, and 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 I guess you, you would call those you know situational investing, uh, situational betting, and I think that. There is a uh, there is a sort of uh, in, intertwining between the two that that really can show some benefits. Anytime you can combine, uh, you know, things like value plus momentum, or you combine, um, you know, a bottoms up approach with situational approaches, um, and you can find value in both those situations, then you are going to just increase increase your edges that you, you're able to find in a game, uh, right? Um, and and again, I think all of the uh, – I think football is a really interesting situation where it's 16 games in a season, right? And any person who's running a strength of schedule model, um, you won't be able to accurately tell someone's strength of schedule um, until week four. Uh, so uh, those first, you know, four weeks of the season, you're – basically just using the priors from last season and a sort of, you know, thumb in the air uh, uh, estimate on how good you think that team is versus another team. Any serious NFL better those first four weeks of the season is using almost purely situational trends because it's almost impossible to determine because of the high turnover rate in terms of players on teams um, uh, and, you know, determining the impact of rookies and things like that. It's almost impossible to accurately determine the true skill level of that team. So at the, in the first part of the season, you're almost purely dependent on these what you call situational factors. But as you get later into the season, you're going to use more of a blend of um, fundamental plus technical investing, or I guess you called it analytical plus um, situational investing. Rethink the way you see sport. Every action or play can be represented by a series of numbers. When you analyse this data, patterns begin to emerge. If you follow these patterns and develop systems, you can play the game within the game. Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So I've heard people talk about, and I've had guests on here talking about uh, the sports betting, given it's uncorrelated to the markets, could become or may become, you know, whatever you want to use for that, uh, an asset class that people would be interested in. Given your background and, and what we've spoken about already, 
What are your thoughts on on that topic? Could it work in the U.S.? There's obviously issues with getting enough volume down and all sorts of things like that. But as we move towards, or much more towards, you know, a global marketplace and and the idea of a an asset class of, of sports betting, whether it be a hedge fund or whatever, what what's that mean to you? And, and do you think it's feasible? Yeah, I think it's absolutely feasible as an asset class. It has. Um, you know, a characteristic that you mentioned, um, it's a truly uncorrelated asset class that um, is is very hard to find in other arenas. It's also a drawback, right? Because uh, there is no beta or market. Um, so when the economy is doing well, you'll see things like real estate, stocks, um, a lot of these asset classes, uh, you know, correlate well together. And but in in draw and in you know recessions or downturns, you know. Beta goes to one for for all those, and they all do, they all do poorly, uh, right? So you don't get any of that, and that's good and bad. Um, but it also means that you can't just invest in an index fund in 1920 and compound at you know six percent a year by investing in the S and P. So you, it's a pure something like sports betting, and as it moves to more peer-to-peer exchanges is going to be a pure alpha generation game where it's me versus you. If I'm winning, that means you're losing, right? Um, so as an asset class, uh, it's going to be very, that's going to be the one thing that's going to be difficult for it to grow uh, past a certain limit because, um, you know, in the, in the case of stocks or um, real estate or things like that, there is, as the economy approves, more people get more money, um, and uh, there's more there's more money to go around. And when you're talking about sports betting, um, you're either beating the house or you're beating another person, right? So that's the one thing. While there's a lot of benefits if you're if you're good at it, it's like uh, it's like a skill that you can have counting cards, where you can continually have a proven edge and continue to make money if you're good at it, and that's great. But you know, billions of dollars in the asset class is going to be far fetched because of the fact that you just can't index and um, it is a zero-sum game in the end. So bookmakers, do they set line to get even action or do they set lines to maximize their profitability? Absolutely the latter. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, these bookmakers have been in the industry for a while and they know better biases. Um, There was a paper by uh, Stephen Levitt, the author of Freakonomics, who detailed this Basically, you know, books will absolutely shade their lines because they know um, that there are public teams, um, that there are, uh, you know, people like to bet favorites, people like to bet certain biases. And that's why um, you see people say, oh, if you just bet the, um, you know, counter consensus, um, you'll do pretty well. And that's that's generally true, because when you're betting the counter consensus, you're betting with the house and the house has um in the current sports betting model, the house has a uh, you know a lot of experience in knowing where action is going to come, and so they are able to shift the line a certain way so that because they know the action is coming that way. So absolutely, it's a fallacy that they are looking for 50-50 action on both sides. So let's talk about the score exchange. What can you tell us about it now? Yeah, so. This, the score exchange is a project that I've been working on with a couple of other guys where um, you know we think that the American sports better is getting a raw deal um, even with the regulation that surrounds gaming um, it which is evolving the current regulation and the industries in place have um, constricted sports betting from evolving I mean you wouldn't never think about going to a a uh, stockbroker to place a trade, a physical, uh, you know, you would never go to Fidelity or Goldman Sachs or anybody like that and say, hey, I want to buy Apple stock. But um, as an, an American sports better, you don't think twice about going to, you know, the Westgate or whatever sports book to place a sports bet. So, I mean, already you can say that this the sports uh Betting landscape is very unevolved from that standpoint, and from the stamp, uh, from the brick and mortar standpoint, and from the standpoint of expenses. Right, having like we talked about earlier, having to lay one ten to win a hundred um, is something that 
uh, has to be a relic of the past. I mean, these high margins um, from sports books will have to come down as competition arises. As um, you know, sports you, you know more about this than me, Jake. But as sports sports betting regulation uh, gets in place state by state, you're going to see more and more competition uh, from uh, betting exchanges and untraditional sports books that will lower these margins for. Um, uh, for players. Um, and then it's also uh, sort of real time anytime where, um, you know, as a, you know, domestically, a lot of what we talk about are pregame bets, you know, betting before the game happens, where internationally, uh, you know, it's much more prevalent to see uh, in game wagering, live lines, things, being able to bet, you know, on your phone uh, anytime. And so, uh, that's why we created the score exchange to sort of hit on these points in terms of it's a, you know, the end goal is to make it a peer to peer exchange where you trade sports teams like stocks. Um, and the value of the sports teams are performance derivatives based on uh, how well the team does that season. And this does, you know, it's simplistic in its nature, but it does a couple things. It allows fans to uh, easily bet on, um, say you were a fan of the Patriots, bet on the Patriots for the season without having to continually say, hey, I wonder if they're going to cover minus seven this week or minus 13 next week, or should I lay the money line? Being able to just say, hey, I want to invest in the Patriots at you know, $25 a share and roll that and, and hold that until the Super Bowl ends is I is what we think is a better mousetrap for the fan to invest. And you know, right now we're not accepting real money. It's a simulated market exchange where we're giving out prizes to people who can um, win win in this game. A lot like uh, fantasy football or pick'em, where you are you start with the budget and you try to grow your grow your bankroll and you know, we're, we're giving prizes to incentivize uh, players to play to accurately predict these games. Um, you know, in the future, we want it to be a true peer-to-peer exchange where, um, you know, a fan can invest in the team that he's rooting for without having to think of VIG, money line, um, et cetera, that, that, as we talked about earlier, makes the game almost impossible to win, um, which makes, unless you are spending your full time and doing sports betting, it's a very difficult endeavor um, to be profitable for uh, a lot of the reasons we mentioned earlier in the podcast. So, so how do you solve? And few issues come to mind initially. How do you solve a the user experience? Obviously, not everyone's an expert or understands completely the stock market necessarily. Yeah. And to the end point, obviously, there's an end point in the season. Do you get? You know the equivalent of dividends. If your team's doing well, do you get some sort of amount at the end of the season based upon maybe season wins? And if you exceed season wins, things like that. How do you? How, how do the payouts work? And what are you valuing, or what is the player basically tying the performance to? Yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, so to your first point, I would say, you know, not everybody understands the stock market. Um, you know, not everybody understands how to properly value Apple stock, right? Um, there, there are two camps of people who invest in Apple stock. One camp is the person who is uh, either trying to determine its earnings per share of what you know, ten to eight seventeen this quarter, um, and then there's another investor who really likes Apple products, right? Um, and they're not necessarily going down to the granular detail of um, uh, figuring out the, the, the earnings per share or the cash flow metrics that would properly value that stock, what they're doing is saying, I really think that Apple is a great company to invest in for the future. And uh, because they make you know world-class products that design, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I want to put my money behind that for whatever period of time. The same could be said for, um, you know, the the Bengals. You may not um, know the exact mechanics of they're going to win. You may not go down to the granular detail of they're going to win 8.7 games with a 
you know, 3% probability to win the Super Bowl, etc. But you may think that, hey, they have a really good defensive line this year that's being undervalued by the market. So that, um, that allows me to invest in the Bengals uh, in an easy manner. So I would say that that's the sort of uh, core corollary, I would say, from investing in the stock market and investing in something like the ScoreX team is you don't have to be uh, super analytical, if you, but if you follow football and you have an information edge in some way, um, you can put that to use um, in this manner. Um, Got it. Okay. No, I, and I think some – it might not be a good analogy, but I remember when the Snap IPO happened, everyone seemed to have an opinion, even those people that knew nothing about you know, IPOs or necessarily the stock market. But for some reason, I guess because it's uh, something that a lot of people obviously use, they thought they knew exactly where the stock was going to go or wasn't going to go. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. They had domain expertise in that – you know, using that product and, you know, they – may have been able to profit from that information from some mechanism. And um, so for your second question in terms of how the mechanics of the the, uh, the exchange works, so these prices are traded on a, on a market basis just like the stock market where buyers and sellers determine the market prices of these teams. Um, so right now the Browns are trading at $13 a share. The Patriots are at – $25, $26 a share. But if the Browns go 5-0, and those expectations for the team rises over the season um, to win the Super Bowl and or to get in the playoffs, win the Super Bowl, etc. All those probabilities start to rise and hence the share price starts to rise. At the end of the season, each team is then would then be cashed out for the amount based on the performance of them that year. So in our in the Scorex, a win is worth a dollar, one dollar and forty cents, and um, make, getting to the playoffs is worth a certain amount, and winning the Super Bowl is worth eight dollars. So you can then quickly calculate the price of that team, what it's worth. It's liquidated once the season's over. Um, you get that share back amount. So a simple example in this case would be if the team goes eight and eight, that's worth fourteen dollars a share once. They, so they wouldn't have made the playoffs, um, say it was the Patriots, then if you were holding a Patriots share, you would then get $14 credited to your account. Does that make sense? Yeah. So so is that purely peer-to-peer, or is there some component of it where the Scorex would need to be the house? So it starts off with the Scorex selling off the shares, and um, after it sells off these shares, they're traded on a peer-to-peer basis, um, right? And so... From the money that comes in off people buying the initial shares, we would then know exactly how much we have to pay out at the end of the season. Does that make sense? Yep, got it. And how do you – there's seemingly going to be a liquidity problem if uh, if it's not adopted quickly. Have you thought that through? A- absolutely. That's why we're running it as a proof of concept this year where it's completely free to play. Um, you know, you set up a li- – so this is a game that, you know, we played – um, before, you know, with just a few people and it works, be, it's not as liquid as what we've made it into with an app and a real-time robust trading exchange, but it works with a, with just a few market participants. Um, where it gets exciting is when you get these real-time pricing updates. Say Tom Brady gets injured. You can then see the impact of that as people start to sell shares. And so obviously um, the more people that are in the market, the better. Um, but you don't you really need either a few what we call market makers, guys who are continually buying and selling. These would be um, an equivalent of your high-frequency traders now in the stock market who are you know, picking up pennies every time you make a trade because um, you're misvaluing it. And this, these guys allow the uh, regular person to just say, hey, I want to put in $20 into the Scorex and invest in some team and, and know that they're – there's going to be accurate pricing going forward. You know, it's interesting. I remember reading Trading Bases and uh, Joe Peter mentioned they were doing something, I think it was a Goldman or wherever he was working at the time, with essentially season wins being the the, the main metric they were sort of basing it on and uh, every Monday coming back to the office and having sort of a robust discussion for a number of hours about 
how their stock, for want of a better term, was was doing or wasn't doing. And it sounds like what you've just mentioned, you don't need too many more than a strong core of participants playing um, to make it work or, or make it viable, I should say. Yeah, exactly. And what's great about this season is, you know, anybody can go in and set up an office pool just like they would, um, just like they did in trading bases with your friends instead of a, of a against the spread pick'em. You were that you're now trading these stocks against each other. And hey, the guy with the highest portfolio at the end of the season is the winner versus um, you know the person who had the most. Um, against the spread picks in a traditional football pool uh, would be the winner, right? And this has the benefits of having no deadlines, um, being able to trade in-game, um, being able uh, and, uh, you know, just being real-time uh, and having that exciting market component that allows uh, people to get engaged and have more skin in the game uh, whenever they want, as little or as much involvement as they want. So, you know, it's an, it's a, it's a concept that um, a lot of finance people have uh, done in the past on trading desks and thing like things like that. But it's a, a concept that is really exciting if you bring it to, uh, you know, a group of your friends and uh, do it with each other. It's something that uh, you know we strongly believe in, and what we want to make. And what we think can have a lot of benefits for, uh, you know, the future of how sports betting evolves is sort of this mechanism where you don't have to know about point spreads or, um, you know, VIG or money lines or things like that. You can just use your domain expertise in the field of the NFL to determine whether um, you're buying or selling a certain team. College football, there's a lot of alumni out there. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, this is something we're starting with the NFL because it is the uh, most heavily traded sport by a wide margin. Um, But absolutely, um, I think this can apply to college football, college basketball, NBA, uh, any other sport. And, you know, we're continually taking feedback and a lot of people want different sports. And uh, we're just telling them, hey, we're doing it as an NFL for right now. But in the future, um, you know, we definitely have plans to evolve to uh, other arenas. So, No, it's fascinating. So what's the best way to get involved? Do you have to be living in the U.S.? Could you be anywhere? How easy is it to sign up? Can you just have uh, you know, a trial period where you're obviously not using real money? Yeah, absolutely. Right now, none of the Scorex is for real money. It's a uh, trial period where it's uh, structured as a game, right? A game component right now where you play, you, you know, you set up a pool against your friends. Um, you know, we're giving out cash prizes throughout the season for um, top participants who trade, uh, who know the NFL really well and can trade really well. So completely free to sign up from that standpoint. Only US and Canada right now because of those contest laws. Um, but uh, when we go to, you know, fiat currency, uh, you know, we expect to be um, in a lot of different places. But right now, if you're in the U.S. or Canada, you can download the app for iOS or Android uh, 100% free. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of prizes you can win throughout the season and, you know, set up a league with your friends to try it out. Give us feedback. And we hope that this can sort of evolve the way uh, sports betting is is being done right now. Before I let you go, a few topics slash questions slash word association that I'll throw at you. Um, Seattle Super Bowl, Marshawn Lynch, run or pass? Pass. Uh, emerging areas in sports betting here in the U.S.? Esports. Uh, yeah, esports. Kelly Criterion. Is there anything about it that's flawed that needs to be fixed or is it the, the best solution right now? Being able to... it's impossible in its current form because it's impossible to calculate your exact edge. Um, so taking a more conservative approach with the Kelly criterion is I think absolutely necessary in terms of quarter or half Kelly's. And lastly, best advice you've received or the, the general advice you normally give to others who, who approach you and ask about sports betting. Yeah, I think Yogi Berra said it best. He said, it's tough making predictions, especially about the future. 
There you go. George, I really appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. We uh, covered a fair bit and uh, a lot of different topics, but I hope everyone enjoyed it. I certainly did. And it sounds like we might have to get you back on after the football season to follow up on, on ScoreX, and there's a million other topics we get we didn't get to. So appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody has any questions, um, just um, george at thescorex.com. So it, whether that relates to uh, sports modeling, if I can be of any help, or um, about sports betting exchanges, please reach out. So Awesome. Thanks a lot, George. Thanks, Jay.